श्री गोरीवैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय सो हैविंग कंप्लीटेड माय वर्क विद द भगवत गीता आई हैव बिगन टू राइट अ कमेंट्री ऑन गोपाल तपनी उपनिषद एंड द कमेंट्री इज ऑफ कोर्स बेस्ड ऑन अदर कमेंट्रीज बोथ दोस ऑफ गौरी वैष्णवस एंड अद्वैतंस बट ओनली द अद्वैतंस by way of uh, reflecting on their particular interpretation and pointing out how the Vaishnava interpretation of the text is more charming and sweet and logical and compelling it seems that the principal commentator for the godias on gopal tapani was prabodhananda saraswati although commentary is attributed also to jiva goswami and vishwanath chakravarti takur but my friend uh, jagarananda prabhu who worked with the commentaries to give a summary of them in english and who did the translation on the the text that the manuscript will publish has concluded that it well that it let it appears at any rate that commentaries have been attributed to vishwanath may very well be just the one commentary that was written by prabodhananda saraswati as well as the one written by Jiva Goswami although there seem to be a couple of a few places where in the commentary attributed to Jiva there are some very slight differences from that of Prabodhananda Saraswati so such is the way with old texts and commentaries sometimes hard to sort out who was the author in relation to the books of the Goswamis it very well may be that a number of them contributed on the various texts that are attributed to Uh, one or or the other in kind of a collaboration otherwise uh with regard to the gopal tapani itself independent of any commentary it is uh, one of the 108 upanishads you might have heard that there are 108 upanishads well there's a an upanishad called the muktika muktika upanishad in which there is a list of 108 Upanishads Gopal Tapani is listed there however there are over 200 texts that are considered Upanishads and have been written in Upanishadic type of of a format and depending on what school one is affiliated with one will give more stress to one section of Upanishads or another sometimes the principal Upanishads are considered 11 and those are the ones that shankar commented upon and they are most closely related to the veda the various branches saka branches of the vedas themselves the four vedas have brahmana sections or saka and that's where the upanishads are are found and outside of these 11 principal sometimes called the principal upanishads which are considered the oldest upanishads by some there's a whole group of well groups various groups of upanishads that would be considered to be identified with particular sects like shaiva upanishads or vaishnava upanishads uh, sanyasa upanishads yoga upanishads and so on and all this greater balance of upanishads other than outside of the first 11 are said to be parts of the atharva veda so it is with gopal tapani upanishad now there'll be of course different opinions about all these things in the academic community and they have a certain method of going about dating these texts and and what not and by that method Gopal Tapani would be considered to be a later Upanishad maybe the 12th or 13th century. Now we as Vaishnavas in our sect not only in our sect but in all the Vaishnav sects and sects outside of Vaishnavism within Hinduism as well it's it's usually considered that Vyasa wrote or really edited all of the Vedic literature It means the Upanishads and the Puranas and the vast body of, of literature according to the bhagavatam itself he had he assigned different sections to different persons and he was like the the uh, editor in chief 
but at the same time, with academic evidence before us, it would it would appear that some of them were written centuries apart. Of course, again, according to the tradition, Vyasa is still living in the Himalayas, and uh, you can go and meet him there if you have the spiritual power, as Madhva is said to have done. So there are different ways of thinking about all these things, and um, one way of thinking about the so-called later Upanishads and whether they can rightfully be attributed to Vyas or or not is that when we talk about revealed literature, we talk about it being revealed principally through a particular saint or mystic. Jiva Goswami said the different Upanishads are named largely in relation to the saint who was most involved in in manifesting them, through whom they manifested. And it's an ongoing affair, revelation. And, for example, in our most modern times of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we have a book called the Chaitanya Upanishad. But there's quite a bit of evidence that would lead us to believe that Bhaktivinoda Thakur wrote that Upanishad. That would make it only about a hundred some plus years old. Of course, it has beautiful verses describing Lord Chaitanya and his advent and and so on. So someone might re- object and say, what is this? Is it writing an Upanishad and attributing it to, to Vyas? But if we look carefully, at it, it, by all appearance, Bhaktivinoda Thakur himself wrote the book, but didn't put his name on it. So we might think this is rather un- unscrupulous and not a good character. But another way of looking at it, that it added, of course, is that should such a secret wisdom, which is basically what Upanishad means, Upanishad means to come and sit close. The implication is so that I can whisper something in your ear, in your ear tell you something that's not the, the common knowledge, secret knowledge. And therefore, sometimes the, the qualification of one is to hear the Upanishadic wisdom is, is spoken about. It's not a sectarian idea that Certain sect of people uh, shouldn't hear the Upanishads, but it's just like anything. It requires some qualification. Don't go into the master's uh, program without an undergraduate degree. You're not allowed. You're barred from studying on that level. So if someone, through someone like Bhaktivinoda Thakur, secret wisdom should manifest, and we would expect that it would, that's why we're paying close attention to such a person. Then, with regard to it being in a Upanishadic format, coming to him in samadhi, in a trance, it would rather be unscrupulous if he attached his own name to it, more so than if he did to Vyas, and by that make a statement, this isn't me, mine, but it's, it's coming through me. So, Vyas means... Bhagavan Vyas, this is considered to be incarnation of, of God, empowered for the writing of the scriptures. We hear in, I think it's Chaitanya Bhagavat, Vrindavan Das Thakur says something like, in the, the Chaitanya Upanishad hasn't been written yet, or the Chaitanya Purana, Vyas hasn't written it yet, I'm writing something. We call him Vyas, Vyas of Chaitanya Leela. There's an interesting, some interesting parallels between the life of Vyas himself and Vrindavan um, Das Thakur that help give credibility to the idea that Vrindavan Das Thakur was an incarnation of Vyas, the Vyas of Chaitanya Lila. Vyas's birth was, uh, was uncommon. Parashara Muni, very dignified person, met a daughter of a, of a fisherman, what was her name? Sat- Satyavati. And just meeting her on the banks of the river, he uh, had uh, union with her, and Vyas was the result. So we could question the character of Parashara, but other than this incident, we don't know anything that uh, would bring question, shed a negative light on him. He's a Vyas himself, or in in a generic sense, a compiler of Vedic wisdom for the benefit of the of human society. And if we look at the whole picture of this affair with the fisherman's daughter, we, we cannot exclude 
that the uh, the birth of Vyas and, and then what kind of person he was, and because that means Krishna Dwipayana, who was also called a Vyas, the son of Parashara. So when we when we look at the whole picture, we have to think something extraordinary is going on there. Why could it would a controlled Rishi all of a sudden fall for a fisherman's daughter? And uh, so sometimes these things have some divine backing. Vyas, after all, is is not an ordinary child. It so happens that the 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 legitimacy in consideration of birth of Brindabandas Thakur was also something in question. Narayani, his mother, was uh, related to Shiva's Thakur. But according to the history, the literature, it's questionable who his uh, who his father was. So in this way there are some some parallels, and of course, the greater parallel is that Yas is living in Badrik Ashram, and there the great uh, Saraswati River is flowing, and from there he penned the Bhagavatam, the biography of Krishna. And when that river manifests as the Jalangi, comes into Bengal, the Bay of Bengal, there at that place in Nadia, Navadvip. Vrindavan Das Thakur is riding along the banks of the same river in the dam of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the, the life, the Chaitanya Bhagwat. Krishna is the person of the Bhagwat coming in the f- form of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, so there's a Bhagwat about him. But he said, Vrindavan Das Thakur, that uh, Vyas hasn't written yet the, the Purana about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So it, it's the idea, is anyway, that as I'm mentioning, that it's an ongoing revelation. Revelation is ongoing. So we should expect that the scripture will come out, manifest through different saints. And still we can say it is all the work of Vyas. They may sign his name on there, Veda Vyas. Because they are, in honesty, they're acknowledging, it's not me, but it's coming through me. This is one way in which we can think about all these things. Of course, more than that is, is the fact that the literature makes sense to us in a very dynamic way. I've said before that this revealed literature is an example of the juncture, the meeting place between eternity and time, between the, the infinite and the finite. In other words, the literature itself, we call it revealed, but obviously it's in, made of leaves or paper or etched on wood, as may be the case, ink, cardboard, so all of these things, ink, cardboard, paper, we can tear it up, we can burn it, so people may have a hard time accepting that it's, uh, it's something uh, extraordinary, but if you read it, of course, it, it only leads you in the direction of that which is eternal. And if you apply what is said there, it gives you experience of eternality takes us beyond our finite conception to come to the shore of the of the infinite. So we have to learn to look at all of these scriptures in a, in a spiritual way. And therefore, the, whatever may be the dating of the Gopal Tapani, whatever may be the true number of the Upanishads, whatever may be, some say these are more important, those are more important. This one is very important to us, to the Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Other than the, the Chaitanya Upanishad, that I mentioned, likely as it is manifesting through Bhaktivinoda Thakur, this Gopal Tapani is very central and important to Gaudiya Vaishnavas. The topic is Gopal, that is Krishna, and Tapani. Tapani means, Tapma, the, the Sanskrit root from the, which this word is derived, means light. So it's that which sheds light on Gopal, on the significance of Gopal Krishna. Or Tapani means like heat, like austerity, the burning of uh, the fire of and pain of sacrifice, tapa. Tapa means austerity, that means pain, it also means knowledge. Because when we undergo some austerity, when we that means when we withdraw our senses from sense objects where they're accustomed to go, that gives some pain to us. But it also makes us think. It activates our mind in a way that it, w- that it wouldn't, wasn't active 
otherwise. When we feel the pain, just like on uh, certain Vaishnav holidays and codices, we fast. So the fast gives some pain in the stomach, and then we can think, why I'm undergoing this? What is the purpose? Normally I wouldn't have this pain, and I might be doing something else, but I'm feeling the pain of this, and I'm withdrawing from activities that I would normally be engaged in, like eating and spending the time on something else, hearing and chanting about Krishna. So when we when we shut down uh, the senses, to that extent we can think more deeply. So tapa means also knowledge. So this Gopal Tapani means that book that gives the knowledge about Gopal, that book that teaches the austerity, the practice, like we were talking last night, the sacrifice that's involved in revealing the truth about Gopal. So it's an important Upanishad for us. Gopal Krishna is our our deity. How to know him, how to understand him, what is his significance. This is what Gopal Tapani is about. So our acharyas, the Goswamis, have have cited Gopal Tapani in, in many places. And today we don't have a definitive devotional edition. So I was interested in this book for many years. And um, now finally I'm getting around to doing something with it. It's about 150 verses. It's divided into two sections, Purva Tapani and Uttar Tapani. Purva means before, earlier, and Uttar means later. This is a characteristic of all the Tapani Upanishads. There's in the Shringa Tapani, there's a Ram Tapani, there's several. And they have uh, various characteristics like this. There's two two sections, Purva and Uttar, and and they de- de- describe a, a mantra and uh, the, the process of worship of that mantra and how to uh, visualize the uh, the mantra. And there's a narrative. So in the first part, the Purva Tapani of Gopal Tapani, we have a description of the Gopal mantra, questions and answers between the sages and Brahma. And in the Uttarupa Tapani of Gopal Tapani, we have a narrative uh, in which uh, Radha and the gopis are involved in questioning the sage Durvas. And in that course of that narrative, also Brahma tells the story at creation when he saw Krishna in his gopavesh, in his dress as a as a gopa, as a gopal, as a, as a cowherd. So. As is traditional with all this type of literature, it begins, Gopal Tapani, with a, what's called a Mangala Charna. This would be similar to, in modern literature to a preface. Preface more than an introduction, or maybe a combination between a preface and an introduction. A preface tells something about the background to writing the book and often acknowledges persons who've been helpful. Introduction, of course, explains something, what it's about. So it's a, it's a, Mangala Charan is, in that sense, it's kind of a preface and or introduction. But it means, literally, Mangala Charana means um, an auspicious invocation. So, Om Satchirananda Rupaya Krishna Yaklista Karine this is the Mangalacharana verse of Gopal Tapani. And the Mangalacharana has certain elemental constituents that, that it's made up of. I explained this to some extent in, in my edition of Tattva Sandarbha. You can refer to that as well for insight into the nature of a, of a Mangalacharana. But the basic elements are... It must give knowledge of the subject of the book, Vishaya. And then the Sambandha. That means, Sambandha means relationship. So the relationship between the book and its subject. Who is the subject of the book? What is the subject? What is the relation between the book and the subject? What's the book going to say about that subject? And who is the Adhikaran, or the person who the book is written for? Who's qualified to read it? Who's the audience, the appropriate audience? What type of persons will have the capacity 
to enter into the mystery of this Upanishad. And what is its then prayogen? What is the the goal? So uh, we find all of these things in this verse. Satchitananda Rupaya, Krishna, Yaklishta Karine, Namo Vedanta Vedaya, Gurave Bodhisakshine. Shruti Devi, the goddess of the Shruti, is speaking here. She says, I offer my obeisances to Krishna, who possesses a form of eternity, knowledge, and bliss, whose every act is untroubled, who is the object of knowledge, identified by the Vedanta, and who is the guru, the witness, present in the intelligence. One thing about Gaudiya Vaishnavism is that while we take from the Shruti, Puranas, this Vedic literature, this literature is all primarily male. Another section of the literature is the, the Tantras, the Agamas, Pantratras. It has a more of a feminine nature. In other words, the Shakti is more the subject of those literatures. And Shaktiman, the source of energy, the Purusha, is the subject of the Upanishads and uh, Veda and Puranas. But the Gaudiya Vaishnavas, they find a union, a happy, a healthy union between these these two. While we are Vedantins, and therefore we identify with the doctrine of the Vedanta, which means the Upanishads, and we extend that to mean the, the, the Smriti as well, with the Puranas, we don't reject the tantras. We object. We reject the idea of those who accept only the tantra and give a tantric type of explanation of reality in which the purusha, God, is uh, not the supreme. With regard, for example, to the creation, to the world, is it independent of the purusha or is it dependent on the purusha? So there are the tantric doctrines that are dealt with in Vyasa's Vedanta Sutra. And the second adhyaya, or chapter of Vedanta Sutra, Vyasa deals with the various different uh, schools. So the, the Tantric school and the Mimamsakas and uh, uh, the Sankhyas and the Patanjali's uh, school of yoga. These are all different schools. And they all draw from these literatures to come up with a, with a meta-narrative, a worldview. And our worldview is, is, is Vedanta. In the second chapter of Vedanta Sutra, which seeks to reveal the significance of the Upanishads and show that the concordance of them, how they all fit together, and it's, it, there's a, un, a unified body of literature making one point. In that second chapter of Vedanta Sutra, then Vyasa takes on these various doctrines. But in Baladev Vidyabhushan's commentary on Vedanta Sutra, Baladev is the, is the commentator on Vedanta Sutra for our Sampradaya. As you may know, we don't think that there is a need for a commentary on Vedanta Sutra because uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, Mahaprabhu Chaitanadev accepted as a natural commentary on Vedanta Sutra by Vyas, the author of the sutras himself. Guruta Purana describes Srimad Bhagavatam in this way. It says that uh, Srimad Bhagavatam is a natural commentary on Vedanta Sutra. Gayatri Basya Rupo Soverartha Paribrimita. Commentary on, on ga- explanation of Gayatri Mantra is revealed in Srimad Bhagavatam. It's the Samaveda of the Puranas. It's uh, the essence of the Mahabharata and, and so on. However, we do have a commentary. And there's a history to that. Some of you may know it. How in, in Jaipur, the deity of Rupa Goswami, Govindaji, who had been kept there by the king to protect the, the deity from the invaders of Vrindavan, the Muslim invaders, uh, he was worshipping the deity of Govindaji appropriately according to the Gaudiya Vedanta conception of divinity. And thus, the boga of Krishna standing next to Radha after it was offered, was offered to Narayan. Because our teaching is that Krishna is to Bhagavan Swayam. Narayan is an incarnation of Krishna. Not that Krishna is an incarnation of Narayana. So these are revolutionary thoughts. They were at the time. And it was, as I said, it wasn't bad enough that, that the boga of Krishna was being offered to Narayan. 
it was the bhoga of Radha and Krishna. Radha, the Shakti, was standing next to Krishna and been given equal position, if not more position. That's Gaudiya Vaishnavism. As Prabhupada used to say, the whole world is trying to get Krishna's attention, but Krishna's trying to get the attention of Radha. So that's Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So a controversy arose, and the validity of the Gaudiya school was challenged. And Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur dispatched the young Baladev Vidyabhushan to Jaipur from Vrindavan to deal with it. And effectively he did so by manifesting the commentary entitled Govinda Bhasha, Govinda Speaks, the language of Govinda. And uh, the story has it anyway, he did it in a rather short period of time. The way that they tried to deal with him was that if you want to defend yourself as being a, a real school of Vedanta, then we'll only deal with you if you have a commentary on the sutras. It's a way of saying, if you haven't put your thinking down in writing, we're not going to deal with you. Because when you write it down, then people can go and check it and see if it all fits together, what the logic of it is. If you don't write it down, if you're not willing to write it down, then don't don't talk to me. If you haven't got it in a book, and you've put it, laid it all out there, if you're just making it up as you go along, and when I get you here, then you jump over there, and uh, I can't pin you down. Oh, I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. <laughs> no, write it down. Then we'll talk. So this is the way they... They tried to deal with him. You don't have a commentary without the sutra. So it's not a question of even talking with you. So he went before the deity of Govindaji and prayed, and Govinda Bhasha, Govinda spoke in his heart, manifest the commentary, which is these commentaries. So they take some time. They said it was done in a matter of days, seven days he returned. I think they gave him ten, he came back in seven. So we accept that commentary, but its necessity arose by force of circumstance. Otherwise, Bhagavatam, Mahaprabhu accepted as a natural commentary on Vedanta Sutra. Somebody raised this point recently that why they asked you writing a commentary on Bhagavad Gita unless the necessity arises because Baladev didn't write a commentary on Vedanta Sutra until the necessity arose. I said, well, the necessity has arisen. <laughs> it's simple. Necessity has arisen. In relation to Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita, he largely, his focus was to, to create devotees. And in one sense, the focus of my commentary is to talk about what it means to be a uh, devotee in greater depth. In Prabhupada's language, boiling the milk. So there's a need to, to get the milk from the cow. And there's a need to boil it also. So here, in this Mangalacharna verse, we have all the... Uh, essential elements that are appropriate for a Mangalacharan verse. We have the subject. The subject is Krishna. That's apparent by the opening line. I offer my nama, obeisances, unto Krishna. It means I offer my body, mind, words. Nama means not me. No, it's not me. It's you. You are worthy of respect. Alpha my obeisances to Krishna. And what is the sambandha? The relationship between the book and its subject, Krishna? Who is the Adhikaran? What is the goal? The relationship between the book and its subject is that this book reveals the nature of worship of Gopal. How to go about worshipping Krishna. The person who's the qualified to, to read it is in this Mangalacharan verse, there's no expectation of any fruit mentioned, any result from undertaking the study of this book. So from that, Jiva Goswami concludes, therefore it must be about, it, the Adhikaran, the qualified person to read it, is, must be the one who's cultivating pure devotion, who doesn't want anything. He's not interested in gaining anything. And so the goal, then, the prayojan is that Pure devotion. Gopal Tapani Upanishad begins with the tradition of Mangalacharana, or invocation of auspiciousness. A Mangalacharana verse consists of four elements. The subject of the text, Vishaya, the relationship between the text and its subject, Sambandha, the goal to be attained by its study, Prayojana, 
and the person who is qualified to enter the mystery of the text, Adhikaran. The subject of Gopal Tapani is Krishna. The relationship between the book and the subject is that the book reveals the practices and their results as they relate to the goal. The goal of the attained is love of Krishna, or pure devotion. And the person qualified to study the text is one who is involved in the cultivation of pure devotion. It's clear from the introductory verse that Krishna is the subject of Gopal Tapani, for it's he who is propitiated herein. The fact that no fruit is mentioned in this verse is significant. Jiva Goswami says that it is understood from this that those qualified to study the text are persons uninterested in acquiring material gain as a result of studying the text. Such persons' aim is devotion for its own sake, and this is therefore the goal of the text. Implied is the fact that the book details practices related to the goal of pure devotion. Chijiva Goswami says further that the import of the first verse is that Krishna alone is worthy of refuge. This is apparent from the verse's description of his form and nature as well as the qualities he possesses. Now, I was mentioning the relationship between the Veda, the male section, and the female section of these sacred literatures, the Tantras and Agamas and Pantratras and the, on one side and the Vedas and the Puranas and on the other side, and how the Godias bring these together, how in Vedanta Sutra Vyas deals with this in the second Adhyaya, and how Baladev, in his commentary on Vyasa's sutras, has made the point that we don't reject the Tantra altogether, that literature. We reject the idea that the Shakti is independent in bringing about the world. So in a healthy way, we combine these. And Gopal Tapani is, a, is an interesting kind of example of that because the very mantra that is the central focus of Gopal Tapani, the Gopal Mantra and the, the Bija, the, be, the seed, cling. Gopal Mantra is that mantra that corresponds with the Kam Gayatri, the appropriate Gayatri corresponding with the Gopal Mantra is Kam Gayatri. In fact, it's considered by Sanatana Goswami Prabhu that when Gayatri, Gayatri is like one of the wives of Brahma, when, when Gayatri mantra heard appropriately about Krishna and the gopis' love for Krishna, that she manifests as, as uh, Gopal Tapani, Kam Gayatri. So you're getting some idea what this, this book is about. It's about the gopis' love for Krishna, Shakti and Purusha, and even we say we're not Shaktas, we're Bhaktas. We worship the Lord, not just the, it generally means the material energy. In Bengal, there's these two sects, the Bhaktas and the, the Shaktas, those who worship God and those who worship material nature, which is one of the principal Shaktis of the Lord. There's, there's even a book called um, Devi Bhagwat, very popular in Bengal, the Devi Bhagwat, where it's considered to be a manufactured uh, Purana in which uh, the author tries to assert the position of Devi as being supreme, the goddess being supreme, and not in the way that we do. So we're bhaktas, but we also could be considered, as Sridhar Marsh once said, uh, what do you say, super, super shaktas, super shaktas because we acknowledge the supreme position of Radha. But it, we do it in a, not in a way as to say that Radha is superior to Krishna overtly. Krishna is the supreme Godhead, he the source of all Shakti. But indirectly, she conquers him by love. He subordinates. He doesn't lose his position as, as God, but he becomes very charming. Prabhupada once said, Krishna does not look beautiful alone. When he's standing next to Radha, then he looks most beautiful. God, along with his shaktis. This is the whole idea of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So, this book is a good example of that combination between the two sides of the tantric literature and the, and the Agamas and then the Vedas and the Puranas, because the Gopal Mantra is also found in the tantras, and the method of worship is also described there. That's 
what mostly what those types of literatures do, all the different practices for worship and whatnot. And it so happens that in Gotamiya Tantra, which the, is attributed to the sage Gotam, which is given much regard by the Gaudiya Acharyas, there is a statement there about uh, Shute Shira, the best of the Shruti. And it describes that best of the Shruti as that Shruti, Shruti means Upanishad, that describes the significance of the Kama Bij. So, Prabhupada Saraswati, drawing from Gotamiya Tantra, says, this, therefore, is the best of the Upanishads. So we began by talking about different opinions about what is the best of the Upanishads. This is our some of our logic. The Tantra says, speaks of the best of the Upanishads, and in that verse, it also describes how clean is a how the the world creation expands uh, from this mantra, which is also explained here in the, in, in the text. Kling, La, Ma, the different letters and so forth uh, represent the different elements. There's, a, there's a, a twofold kind of an explanation. If you, if you study Brahma Samhita, that you, know, you know that Brahma got this mantra and with it he got the power to do two things. He got, he got the power to do the creation, which was his desire. But he also got the power that by doing the creation in relation to his empowerment through the mantra, we call this dovetailing. So he, he was able, he had a fruit of desire. Brahma is a, is a classic example of what we call karma mishra bhakti. Bhakti mixed with karma. Karma means interest in, in, in the world. So he had a big interest to do the creation. So he, he did meditation to get the power to do this. And ultimately, and this, this will be described later on in the, in the Uttar Tapani of Gopal Tapani. He got the, this uh, Kama Bij and the Gopal Mantra, Kam Gayatri, and he was able to successfully do the work of creation. But as I say, moreover, he was able to dovetail his desire in such a way that he got purified of that. So he also got revelation of Golok and entered into the spiritual sky. So the best of the Shruti, that is Gopal Tapani, in the language of Gotamiya Tantra. Prabodhananda Saraswati attributes the speaking of this verse to the goddess of revealed knowledge, Shruti Devi. Here she salutes the Supreme God as she begins to manifest this sacred text. She says, I offer my obeisances to Krishna, and by Krishna, she refers to the same person mentioned elsewhere in Upanishads. Devaki Putra, Brahmano, there are a couple of statements in the Upanishads about Krishna, who is devoted to spiritual knowledge. He is the original person, worthy of all respect, offered with body, mind, and words. Nama. So, Nama, Satchitananarupaya, Krishnaya. Here, Shruti describes his nature is that of possessing a form of eternity, knowledge, and bliss, satchitananda, rupaya. Later on, in verse 7, what follows this introductory verse is questions by the sages of Brahma. So sages question, Brahma answers. In text 7, they ask about, particularly about the form. So satchitananda, rupaya, like here in the introduction, introductory verse, it describes his nature. His form, they will ask about in greater detail, and that will be answered by Brahma. So his nature, his sat. Sat means that his, this is describing the nature of his, uh, well, they say he has a nature, he has a form. They're one and they're, they're different. The nature of his form, we can say, in one sense, is this. It's sat. He's sat. So this is hard to understand, but sat means what? Sat means e- eternal. So that means he's beyond time and beyond space. We should un- try to understand this point. Krishna's person, the person of Krishna, the form of Krishna, is not limited by time and space. And at the same time, he's moving. How is it possible? He's all-pervasive. He's not limited by time or space. 
but moving from one place to another. How can you be everywhere and move anywhere? Where is there to go? This is inconceivable that this is Krishna. And this is what, for example, Srimad Bhagavatam says about him. It says he goes to Govardhan, he goes to Radhakund, he goes, he shows his mother that the whole universe is inside of him. And meanwhile, he's sitting on his lap, on her lap, and saying, no, I didn't need any dirt. Look and see. She looks inside and sees the whole universe. And inside that universe, she sees herself holding Krishna on her lap, looking in his mouth. And inside that mouth, the whole universe. And then her, she's in there, holding Krishna, looking in his mouth. And she's realized she sees everything inside of him. Of course, she doesn't get affected by that. She just thinks, oh, yeah. They said at his birth, Gargamuni said he would have powers like Narayan. Mm-hmm. That's the power of Narayan in him, but he's just my son. We are quick to make the point that Krishna is the source of Narayan. I mentioned it earlier. But in Vrindavan, they don't think like that. We have to think like that to derive the enthusiasm to invest all of our faith and attention in Krishna. And upon doing so, we hope to arrive at the position of thinking just the opposite, even more so than the opposite. We think that uh, yeah, Narayan is the source of everything, source of my friend, too. Source of my son, in the case of Mother Yasoda. And he may do wonderful things, that's, that's okay, but that's Narayan doing those wonderful things. So, in the beginning, we teach that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and we hope that we'll forget that by Yoga Maya's influence in time. So, he's everywhere. He's, he's eternal. He's beyond time and space. Sat. He's chit, means he's self luminous and completely possessed of joy. Ananda, Satchirananda Rupaya. This being his nature is known by the two syllables, Krishna. All this is indicated by these two syllables, Krishna. He is the form of all-pervasive, self-illumined, joyful consciousness. And his form itself will be discussed in answer to the questions posed by the sages in verse 7. Shruti Devi next describes what? His potency. Satchirananda Rupaya. Krishna kya klishtakarine, aklishtakarine. Well, this is very interesting. This is really a reference to his potency. Aklishtakarine means, karine means to do so. He d- does everything effortlessly, without any trouble, is what it means. But what it implies is that there he has wonderful energies by which he accomplishes everything effortlessly. Parasya Shakti Vibhadhaiva Shriyate, it's mentioned, I think, in Svetashva Uttara Upanishad. This is a Shruti reference to the Shakti of Godhead. That the Lord has innumerable Shaktis by which he accomplishes wonderful things. So Gopal Tapani is saying that here. What are those wonderful things that he does? Well, there are so many, so many things. And, uh, Prabodhanan Saraswati, I believe, has given many uh, references to the Bhagavatam of his wonderful activities, effortless activities, like the killing of sin personified, Aga, Sura. He means the personification of sin without any effort. He, he killed him. He did a wonderful thing by giving Putana, who was worthy of what? By our estimation, if a lady comes to your house dressed as a, as a nurse, to babysit for your infant and smears poison on her breast and offers it to the child, what will we think she deserves for that? Go to hell, will be headlines in the paper. Nurse poisons child by smearing breast poison on her breast. It's so insidious. What did Krishna do? Krishna just accepted her as his mother. Oh, you're my mother. You wanted to offer me breast milk or not? He gave her vatsalirasa. Is why Uddhava realized this. He thought, well, this is incredible. Uddhava is a very learned, he's the advisor of Krishna in Dwarka. And when he thought about this, he said, my goodness, this means, this, it's from this we should understand nobody in their right mind would take shelter of anyone other than Krishna. <laughs> he is a whole, all merciful. Vishnu in him may see some, some defect in us and try to correct it, but Krishna only sees whatever percent in our approach to him is, is can be construed as Devotion, just the motion, just the physical motion, offering her breast. 
even though she had all the wrong intentions. If we chant Hare Krishna even with the wrong intentions, we'll, we'll get purified. We should look to see that that <laughs> purification happens. <laughs> we know we're chanting properly. This is the nature of Krishna. So he does wonderful things, effortlessly. And of course, the most wonderful thing that he ha- that he does, and this is by his shakti, is that he places himself at the disposal of his devotees. This is the most charming thing. Although he's the yanmitra paramanandam purna brahma sanatana, aho bhagyam aho bhagyam nanda Bajokasam. Oh, how lucky, Brahma says, how lucky are the people of Vrindavan and Nanda Maharaj that the Purna Brahma, the full Supreme Brahman himself, has become their friend, intimate friend. So Krishna gives himself to his devotee. This is the most wonderful thing. It is said Krishna has many qualities, the most endearing of which is, important of which is what? Bhaktavatsal. That he's controlled by his devotees. So this is the significance, Aklishtakarine. And what we're hearing is that this book is going to describe about the wonderful Shakti of Krishna. So later in this book, of course, Radharani appears as Gandharvika, by that name, Gandharvika, as the principal gopi. The gopis will push her forward to ask Krishna and ask Durvas about their position. And through their answer then, or the whole of Achintibeda Veda Tattva, Philosophy, metaphysic of Gaudiya Vaishnavism is revealed. So Shuti Devi next describes his potency, Shakti, by which he effortlessly accomplishes everything and through which he frees his devotees from misery. He is Aklista Karine, one who acts wonderfully, the best example of which is his becoming the intimate friend of his devotees in spite of his exalted position. His acts are wonderful, being those of joy and thus not enacted out of Necessity. Indeed, such acts bring an end to the necessity of others that are born out of the illusion of bodily identification. Merely hearing of his wonderful activities serves to liberate one from the illusory demands of material life, for such acts shed light on the possibility of enlightened life beyond the constraints of matter and its masks of repeated birth and death. So, Aklishtakarani means, it is Lila Shakti. He's performing Lila under the influence of, sh- of his Shakti. And that is activity that's not born out of any necessity. As I've explained before, we have necessity to act owing to what? Our identification with matter. Because matter is subject to deterioration. It's subject to any form of matter to being dismantled. That's what we call death. When the elements that make up our body are dismantled and consumed by the, like the, uh, it's just like if you have so many bricks and concrete and wood and so forth, and you take a house apart and take the respective elements to the places where you got them, all these forms of matter coming and going. So when we identify with that, well, we have, we think it's, identification means we think it's us, so we got we have a problem. We're, we're living in a plane where our existence seems threatened. So we have to get busy. We have to try to counteract that. So all this, our movement is born out of a necessity. This is what we mean by the realm of karma. And lila, which looks like karma, looks like activity. Karma means literally activity, action. It's, it has a different uh, motivation behind it. No motivation. It's causeless. There's no purpose to it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just like having fun. It's like Krishna have, this is, means he's just having fun, just being being joy. He doesn't have to accomplish anything by that. But he accomplishes wonderful things without trying. This is the idea. And what is most wonderful about that? Well, we can say, as I did, that he puts himself in a position subordinate to his, to his devotees, subordinates himself to his own shakti, but also that by hearing about those activities, our necessity will come to an end. From that, we can practically understand, oh, this is of a different nature, his activities. It will bring an end to our necessity to move about by ending, eradicating, bringing an end to our identification with matter. And so easy to hear about, so charming to hear about Krishna Leela. It's not difficult. The proof 
Now, of Krishna's position as such an Andarupaya Krishna Karane, what is what is the proof? So here it says that Namo uh, Vedanta Vedaya. He is the subject of the Veda. So it means that, well, if you question, well, who says he does wonderful things? The Veda says he does. Vedanta says he's a subject of Vedanta. How do we know that? From Srimad Bhagavatam, as I mentioned earlier, which is the commentary on, on Vedanta, what do we find there? All the wonderful activities of Krishna that I mentioned and more are all described in great detail. So this is what the Vedanta says. He's the subject of Vedanta. So there's your pramana, your proof that he's a klistakarane and satchitanandarupaya. Like I described something a little bit briefly about the Damodar Leela. Krishna shows in that Leela. It is, well, not Damodar Leela. I talked about the seeing the universal form. But in Damodar Leela, in Bhagavatam, another example, Krishna's being tied up by the rope of Malia Shodhana and it's two inches too short. Can't tie it. It's not that he's getting fatter and fatter and fatter all the time every time she brings two more inches. He's staying the same size. What size? Medium size. There's an infinite and infinitesimal each immeasurable. He's appearing in medium size. But he's infinite and he's infinitesimal. He's smaller than the smallest, bigger than the biggest. All the rope in Vrindavan couldn't tie him up. He's staying the same size. Medium size means like us. But as soon as he he sees her effort and he understands her motive, she wants to tie me up. Why? To chastise me? No. So that I won't run away. She threatened to chastise me, now she thinks I'm going to run away. She can't bear that thought, so she wants to tie me up. Originally, Mother Yasoda sought to tie him with a ribbon in her hair. She pulled the ribbon from her hair and tried to tie him up. But it was two inches too short. So, gathered more rope, more rope, more rope, but each time two inches too short. And perspiring and making effort to tie him up. That two inches represents what? Effort that we have to put out. And the kripa, the mercy that we have to get to be successful, both things. We should live in this world as if our success in spiritual life depends on our effort, full knowing that it's only by Krishna's mercy that we can be successful. But we shouldn't live in the world saying, it's only by Krishna's mercy I'll be successful, so I'll make no effort. If he's merciful to me, certainly I'll go back to God. <laughs> what can I do? You can act in such a way that he'll, he'll want to give his mercy to you. So she did that with that such effort. Then he gave the mercy, and suddenly with that original ribbon from her hair, she could tie him up. And there was only a ribbon in her hair, but she tied it so tight with a bond of love that that, uh, that he couldn't get out. He couldn't get, break loose. He was tied to a mortar, like with his hands behind his back, and what did he do? He took the mortar and, passed, and lodged it between two trees in order to break that bond. What happened? The trees broke. <laughs> he couldn't untie it. <laughs> Bound entirely by her love. But he's showing he's unlimitedly strong. He can pull down two trees. <laughs> the bond is, is the bond of her love. That's stronger than Krishna. That love conquers him. So in anyway, in that Leela also, in so many Leelas, he, he showed himself to be wonderful, to be all-pervasive. He's everywhere. No, all the rope in the world couldn't bind him. Still, he's staying only one small size. See, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he didn't try to reason about this very much. He said, this is the Leela of Krishna described, and that's what's going on. So we see that he's one and he's different at the same time. He's all-pervasive and moving. That's what it says. We accept it. How is it going on? How is it possible? These are possible things. How is he can be one and different at the same time? What is the answer? Achintya. It's not Veda Ved, but Achintya Veda Ved. In the Veda Ved of um, Nimbarka, then, sometimes the Absolute is one, sometimes different. But what do we say? He's one and different at the same time. We say, well, how is that possible? It's Achintya. He has, in other words, he's possessed of Achintya Shakti, inconceivable powers. Akrishtakarine, as it's described here, by which he does wonderful things. Effortlessly. How do we know? Namo Vedanta Vedaya. Namo Vedanta Vedaya. He's, it's found in the Veda. He's the, he, he's the subject of the Veda. If we go to the Veda, 
we can find out all those things. What is a Veda? How do you understand the Veda from the Sutras? What is an explanation of the Sutra? Srimad Bhagavatam. What is the subject? Krishna. Krishna is the subject of all the literature, of all the Vedic literature. This is, the Vedanta Sutra says, what is that? Uh, Shastra Yonitvat. By Shastra we will know, and by understanding it in context. We understand in context, then we can understand all these diverse statements of the Vedas. Some say worship this God, some say worship that God. But what is the context? We look at the whole body, we can understand only, like in Bhagavad Gita, directly and indirectly, Krishna is indicating only one thing, devotion to himself. So, Namo Vedanta Vedaya, also, he's a subject of the Veda. He says it himself. 1515. Matasmati cha. I am knowledge, I am remembrance, forgetfulness of all the Veda. Of all the Vedas, I am to be known. Indeed, I am the compiler of Vedanta itself. This is also Shruti, Bhagavad Gita, Gita Upanishad. So he's the object of knowledge that the Vedanta speaks about, as he himself has proclaimed in Bhagavad Gita. Furthermore, it is he who is the Guru. He says here, Namo Vedanta Vedaya Gurave Bodhisakshine. So he's such an Andarupaya as a form of eternality, bliss, and knowledge. He's a Klishtakarane. He has inconceivable potencies by which he does wonderful things. Namo Vedanta Veda. He's the subject of the Veda. He's a Gurave. He's the Guru. What's a good example of that? In Bhagavad Gita, he's teaching Arjun. Shishastayam sadimam tumpapanam. Arjun says, I accept you as my Guru. Bhagavatam says, Acharjumam vijaniyam. Krishna speaking. Krishna is speaking about Varnashram, about Kuluguru. Kuluguru means a family guru, a family priest. He calls him Acharya and he says, Acharya Mumbijaniyam. I am the Acharya and you should never have any disregard for him. He's the embodiment of all the gods. Don't ever be envious of him because that's me. Krishna is speaking about a Kuluguru, a Kuluguru, what to speak of a Sadguru. Guru, we call it Guru Tattva. So the Vaishnav is uh, like a what do you say, conduit, something like that. He has his Vaishnav side, relative side, and absolute side. His humanness, but even that is colored by his, what he represents, what he's absorbed in. He's a Vaishnav. So, sakshadharitena samasta shastra kintu pravorya priyaeva tasya. He's fully Krishna represented, but he's a servant of Krishna at the same time. So, Krishna is there in the Guru, coming to us locally to deal with us. So we should pay attention there, first and foremost. Sridhar Marsh once said, if you see Krishna in your practice, then you go and ask your guru, is, and he asks you for something, you go and ask your guru, is that the one you were talking about? He asked me for some service. Should I render it? So Krishna is that a guru, we should understand. Prabhupada said, oh, in innumerable uh, forms, the one Krishna is appearing to teach all of us. And he's also what? Bodhisakshine. He's the witness of the intelligence. Matasmatik jnanam apohanam cha. He's outside as the guru and inside as the guru. Guru means chaita guru. Inside. Making it possible for us to know even common things by dint of our senses, mind, and intelligence. And for us to understand spiritual teaching as well. So furthermore, it is he who is the guru that instructs us as to the meaning of the Panishads. And this too is clear from this discourse to Arjun in Gita Panishad. Moreover, it is he who manifests as the inner ability to recognize the external manifestation of guru as well. For he is the witness present in the intelligence. Interesting point. <laughs> Because different people recognize Krishna's descent in different places. And Krishna is giving them that power, according to this verse, to do that. Jiva Goswami comments that Krishna is the presiding deity of intelligence, and thus the cause of the ability to understand that which is being explained by the scripture. Thus he is the guru who appears before us in the form of a saint, as well as the indwelling guide that presides over the intellect, mind, and senses, enabling them to act as instruments of perception and understanding, both material and spiritual. All right, so we'll stop there.
श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय गुरु भक्त वृंद की जय गुरु प्रेमानंदी